Welcome to TKG's Healthcare Insights, where we explore healthcare's critical issues, challenges, and trends with a focus on achieving the quadruple aim of enhancing patient experience, improving population health, reducing costs, and improving the work life of healthcare providers and staff. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome. We're glad to have you listening today. I'm Warren Smedley with the Kinetics Group, and today we will be taking a look at some of the significant challenges we are seeing as genetic and genomic testing become mainstreamed into our clinical treatment protocols. Over the last several years, we have seen a proliferation of targeted therapies for specific cancers based on their individual, unique genetic makeup. In order to apply these therapies correctly, genetic and genomic testing has exploded and become a critical part of diagnosing diseases and then determining which therapies are likely to be most effective. Our guests today are Megan Farmer and Danielle Bonadies. Both are master's trained genetic counselors and executives with MyGeneCounsel. That's a digital health company serving patients and providers by bridging the gap between genetic testing and precision medicine by addressing the lack of accurate and timely genetic counseling information for patients and providers. Megan also serves as a genetic counseling expert on TKG's Oncology Thought Leaders Network panel, and we've been fortunate to have both of these experts on previous podcast episodes. Hey, before we get started, I want to mention that this topic is so compelling that the Kinetics Group has developed an infographic that summarizes the top errors in genetic counseling and how these errors may be impacting therapeutic decision-making. If you'd like a copy of this infographic titled Challenges and Errors in Genetic Testing Negatively Impact Therapeutic Decision-Making, please email me directly or send a request to our podcast email address, oncology at thekineticsgroup.com. Okay, let's get started. Welcome, Danielle and Megan. Thank you for being with us again. Thanks, Warren. It's such a pleasure to be here today. Megan and Danielle, I read your recent article in the Cancer Journal, Challenges and Errors in Genetic Testing, and I was really anxious to get back to you and get you on this show so we could find out more about your study. It's an excellent study, by the way. In your study, you uncovered some incredibly important findings highlighting the challenges and errors that are occurring in interpreting and applying the results of genetic and genomic testing. You reported that there are over 75,000 genetic tests on the market, with as many as 10 new tests being added every day. Now, that volume of information seems like it could be overwhelming to many clinical teams, and your report certainly highlights the need to find innovative solutions to support clinical teams in their use of these testing results. Let me begin today's discussion by asking you to remind our listeners who my gene council is and what your respective roles are within your organization. Maybe, Danielle, start with you. Great. Yes. Hello, everyone. My name is Danielle Bonadies. I'm the co-founder of my gene council, and I currently oversee all of our genetic counseling as well as our product teams. And I'm so happy to be here with you today, especially to talk about this new publication as this is a topic that actually inspired the concept for my gene council. So when I was a practicing genetic counselor, we saw an exponential growth in genetic testing, and really that continues to, to today. But with this growth, we also saw more and more patients having genetic testing outside the traditional genetics settings. And that had a lot of benefits in terms of access and getting more people testing. But we also saw many patients being harmed. 
And so we started publishing these cases, and this is now our fifth paper in this series to document the high rate of result misinterpretation, particularly of genetic test results when they are ordered or interpreted by non-genetics providers. So it was really from these early experiences that we had in clinic that we founded MyGeneCouncil. And our company now provides a digital genetic counseling resource that is able to provide patients and clinicians pre and post genetic counseling information. And really our goal is to reduce the number of errors that are happening in genetics. A second kind of important aspect of my gene counsel is that we also try to address the long-term needs of patients by delivering them updates and notifications about medical management or variant reclassifications. But when it comes to this paper, I'm very happy that Megan Farmer is here with us today as well, because she was really the powerhouse behind this fifth paper. It's a great article, Megan. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got to this uh, article and um, how you pulled it all together and why you did it? Absolutely. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm Megan Farmer. I'm the Genetic Clinical Operations Director with My Gene Council. I've been a clinical genetic counselor uh, for 10 years and directed the Cancer Genetic Counseling Program at UAB for several years. So I saw a lot of errors and challenges in genetic testing through my own clinical experience, just like Danielle's told you all. And just through discussion with our genetics colleagues, we've learned of many errors or challenges related to germline or hereditary cancer genetic testing and medical management in particular. And these are often patients that seek or are referred to a genetic counselor after such an error or difficult clinical question. So this is the fifth in this series of papers. Danielle's been involved from the start, and I um, led the effort on the last two. And we feel like it's really important for a few key reasons. Um, One, as kind of a cautionary tale, we get some of the same errors repeated over and over again. And so we'd like to draw attention to those errors, not as a gotcha, but in hopes of preventing similar errors in the future. And also to highlight the important roles of genetic counselors and to advocate for genetic counselors as experts in this area. In most of these cases, it was genetic counselors that prevented, addressed, or at least mitigated the harm related to the errors that came up related to genetic testing. And then lastly, we don't just point out these problems. We also propose solutions, which I'm sure we'll get to later. But as for the study itself, We called for these cases in the National Society of Genetic Counselors discussion board and also on social media. And we used cases that are um, shared in our anonymous monthly case series with Precision Oncology News. So contributors shared these anonymized cases by giving us medical information like personal and family cancer history, genetic test results, and then we reviewed those um, cases and identified trends or themes. Very good. Uh, super interesting article, overwhelming the types of case situations that you actually explain. One of the things that caught my attention right off the bat was how complex this whole uh, genetic testing uh, uh, environment has become. The, you mentioned in the article that there are over 75,000 tests in the market. Uh, and of course, then we start thinking about all these different types of tests within that 75,000. You mentioned the different, uh, some are panels, some are individual tests. 
We've got germline tests, somatic tests, commercial tests. There are other kinds of tests that can, some tests can be used for prevention, some for screening, some for diagnosis, some for therapy selection. There are the individual tests, the panels, different types of testing, or the different types of testing techniques like the Sanger sequencing. I don't know that you mentioned that one in there, but qPCR, um, NGS. It's overwhelming. And how are people, how are clinicians supposed to keep up with all of that? That is a great question. And I think we could probably talk about it all day and really get in the weeds. (laughs) But in the area of oncology, I think we can start with breaking it down into a couple broad categories. So somatic testing is genetic testing of the tumor or tumor um, DNA itself. And this is usually for precision therapy reasons. So for instance, tumor genome profiling. And then there's germline genetic testing, or in this setting, hereditary cancer testing, which is the analysis of the genetic information that someone is born with and can be passed to children. And a genetic diagnosis in this setting could affect many things. It could affect cancer treatment decisions like targeted therapies. It could identify risk of new primary cancers that someone's at risk for. So that could affect things like screening and risk-reducing options. And then, of course, in genetics, we think of the whole family. So this could be important for relatives, too. And most of the cases that we cover in this paper fall into this hereditary cancer setting. But I will say that within both types, whether you're looking at somatic or germline testing, there can be real variability both in how many genes are tested. So are you looking at a select few or are you going broader? Um, The kinds of genes tested. So is it a disease-specific panel like several linked with breast cancer or is it a pan-cancer panel where we're looking at genes linked with several types of cancer? And even the technical approach of the lab. So you listed several ways we can approach genetic testing. Um, But while not frequent, you know, you could have two different commercial labs offering similar um, tests with similar approaches, but maybe lab one looks at DNA and RNA and lab two just looks at DNA. And there could be a tricky variant that lab one is able to identify or able to better interpret than lab two. So that means that you now have clinicians needing to think about who do I need to order a genetic test for? What kind of test do I need to order? And even what lab would serve the patient in front of me best? That's a lot to think through, but um, genetic counselors are there to help. Uh, You've mentioned sort of multiple things happening within these tests. I know there are certain things we've looked at ROS1 rearrangements, and that actually takes multiple tests to get that answer, not just run one thing. So, um, Uh, It gets very complicated, especially for clinicians that are trying to order these these various tests to to get them. Let me jump to asking you to describe the cases in your report. You described more than 30 cases of errors or challenges in genetic testing. Can you help us? You grouped them into several different categories. Can you help us understand how how you've grouped them and then maybe some of the findings? Some of them were really alarming. Yeah, I can I can group into a few broad categories just to make it easier to talk through or think about. So the, the number one type of error we see is just misinterpreting genetic test results. So even if you do a great test, if you don't understand what the results mean, then you can really do patients harm. So this can lead to incorrect medical management recommendations um, and even liability. So for instance, um, we often see that clinicians will treat a genetic variant of uncertain significance or a VUS as a positive result. A VUS is a genetic variant about which there are limited or conflicting data, and the lab can't classify it as definitely pathogenic or benign. So they 
report that they detect a variant, but that it's of uncertain clinical significance. And we shouldn't act on that. We should base management based on just patients' personal and family history versus having a variant in that gene that we really don't understand what it means. Um, But unfortunately, many clinicians um, in the paper and in the errors that we describe actually do act on them as if they're pathogenic. So that's one of the main types of errors. Um, There are other cases where incorrect or unnecessary genetic testing was ordered. So for instance, a a patient might say, I have a family history of XYZ genetic condition, but then the clinician ordered um, genetic testing for a completely different genetic condition. And in other cases, the right test was done and a genetic variant was identified and the clinician understood what it meant, but they still recommended the wrong medical care. So as an example, um, maybe a pathogenic variant is found in a gene linked with modest or moderate increased risk of breast cancer, and the NCCN may recommend you know, just increased breast screening in that case versus consideration of something like risk-reducing mastectomy. But the clinician goes on to make recommendation for a risk-reducing mastectomy anyway because they're treating it like a high-risk gene. And this may be because a lot of the genes we knew about first, like BRCA1 and 2, um, pathogenic variants in those genes are linked with very high risk of cancer and risk-reducing mastectomy is um, indicated in that setting. But unfortunately, sometimes all genes get lumped together and treated the same, even though that's not appropriate. And then there was also just incorrect information given to patients. So in two different cases in this paper, um, a clinician told a patient that only maternal family history matters. And so either there was a very strong family history of cancer on dad's side of the family or even a known genetic condition on dad's side of the family. And these patients were told, that's okay, don't worry about it. It only matters if it's on mom's side of the family. Um, And then there were just a couple of really unusual cases that kind of surprised us. So one um, involved a patient that underwent or a person that underwent genetic testing at a pop-up site at um, actually a home show and was found to have a pathogenic variant. And then when her daughter went to have genetic testing based on um, the mother's result, the mom sample was sent to the lab as a positive control. And it was a different kind of reputable commercial lab used in the daughter's case. And the lab wasn't able to find the mom's variant. And the genetic counselor um, ultimately found out through talking with um, the pop-up sites lab that the sample was really degraded and should never have been used um, to to run analysis on. And so the mom didn't really have this pathogenic variant. Um, And she was actually planning to undergo risk-reducing surgeries based on that. So you could see how harmful that could have been. And then um, the last really unusual case was a patient's mother um, appears to have falsified her daughter's genetic test result. Um, because she just wanted to ensure that the daughter could access risk-reducing options. So she found a sample report that was on a lab's website and used that to make a fake um, genetic test result. But thankfully, the genetic counselor um, caught the issue and and was able to remedy that. Wow. Yeah, the ramifications of those kinds of things are enormous. What kinds of of protections are in place before patients run off the and get some kind of risk-reducing surgery, especially if ladies are having ovaries out and that, you know, then really alters their ability to have children. So um, what kinds of safeguards are in place to prevent the wrong kind of a, uh, of an outcome? 
Unfortunately, um, we often see clinicians um, performing these surgeries, even if they don't have a genetic test result in hand. So sometimes a patient will report having a, a pathogenic variant in a gene, and maybe it's even really just a VUS. And so we'll, we'll realize that it wasn't, it was documented in a clinic note somewhere, but that no one actually laid their hands on the result, the actual genetic test result to confirm that there was a pathogenic variant there. And we're seeing payers in some cases paying for risk-reducing surgeries that aren't appropriate because it's a lot for payers to keep up with too. So there's really not a lot of safeguards other than making sure that either a genetic counselor is involved in counseling before, um, before big interventions like this, or um, digital genetic counseling tools like my gene council, where a clinician could have access to content that explains what's indicated based on a particular genetic test result in order to try to prevent some of these errors. It's also important to keep in mind that these are likely really well-meaning clinicians who are trying to help their patients. But when you think of the average surgeon or oncologist and the scope of what their practice already is, to add genetics on top of that is likely you know, a lot for us to be asking. And so providing them those tools, whether it be genetic counseling, you know, in-person services within their institution or by phone or digital tools. We need to be um, taking this to the next level to give them the tools so that they can manage their patients appropriately to reduce these types of errors. That was going to be sort of my next question. What are those gaps that you're seeing? It appears to be fairly overwhelming amount of information coming back if a genetics test is done, you get a, an 80-page report or something to that effect. What are the gaps that you're seeing on the provider side? Are they are they asking for help? Are they just ignoring the the reports? What <laughs> what are they doing with these reports? Uh, what and what are the, really I'm asking what are, what are the gaps? What are the gaps that need to be filled there that you're seeing as a result of these these studies that you've done? Sure. Well, one of the gaps that we're seeing is that we need to to support and use our genetic counselors appropriately. And one of the ways that we can do that is by allowing them to bill and get reimbursed for their services. And we have an act right now. It's HR 2144. It's the Access to Genetic Counselor Services Act that is in our legislative body. And really so many of the professional communities have seen that this is important and they've thrown their weight behind it and signed on to give their support. But additional groups could always add on to that as well. And really the goal of the act is to establish Medicare provider status for genetic counselors. And this would decrease costs to Medicare. And then it would also, we hope, allow better access to genetic counselors and thus then reduce errors related to genetic testing. So kind of bringing it back to this paper and the work that we've done. I think the second thing that we could do, again, is just to provide clinicians those tools that they need to manage the patients. uh, Digital tools can be used to pair with a test result to give that accurate genetic counseling information. And really to do both of these things at scale to provide genetic counseling services and then digital tools We really need to amplify both of these things at the same time to be able to service the number of patients and clinicians that need accurate genetic counseling information. 
With all of the targeted therapies that are coming out, it seems like more and more and more the therapies are targeted to specific genetic profiles, biomarker profiles. Talk for a minute about incidental findings, because as these tests are being done, the doctor may have ordered it because the patient presented with a specific situation and they were testing for a specific biomarker, but then they're getting incidental findings. Can you talk about the wh- what is happening with incidental findings and what kind of problems that may present? Sure, I'll take that one. So in some cases, um, a clinician may order, especially a, a broader tun- tumor genome profile, and they may identify a pathogenic variant in a gene that isn't just in the tumor, but it's actually in the patient's germline that could be called out by the somatic testing lab, or it may be that there are just clues on the report that indicate that. So for instance, if a pathogenic variant in BRCA1 or BRCA2 are found in any tumor, even if it's not in a patient for whom that genetic condition is suspected, then the NCCN recommends germline testing and counseling for that patient. And if you have um, an oncologist seeing a a 75-year-old male with lung cancer, that might not have been on her radar at all. And so it really comes out of left field and suddenly she's left handling um, a clinical situation that just kind of feels out of her wheelhouse. So that's one issue. And then other times there are um, pathogenic variants identified and they're seen at a higher level than would be expected if just in the tumor itself. And it might be in a gene that someone's even less familiar with with, than with BRCA1 or 2. So there are times when the lab um, will call that out and even labs might work with genetics resources, either in-house or, you know, contracting with telehealth companies, but not always. And so um, it really can be an area of not just frustration, but even liability for oncologists. So it's really important that before that happens to you, you've already identified genetic counseling resources, either in-house or through telehealth or through digital genetic counseling support so that you know what to do next if that happens. And I'll add a third example to that as well. So the American College of Medical Genetics has given some guidance on 73 individual genes, many that fall in the hereditary cancer space, some in the cardiac space as well, and then a kind of smattering of other genes But their guidance was that if testing was being done for any reason, but a pathogenic variant was found in one of these genes, that it be returned to the participant because that information could impact their medical management. And so labs have struggled for a while in terms of that guidance and under which situations it's most appropriate to return that information, whether consent is needed or not. But these are kind of challenges within the field, as well as things that clinicians and then thus patients have been experiencing and grappling with. Okay, this is a good place to pause and wrap up part one of our discussion with Megan and Danielle. In the next episode, we'll pick back up at this point and continue our discussion exploring the top errors in genetic counseling and how that might impact therapeutic decision-making. These errors in genetic testing can have a significant impact on what patients receive in terms of care for their situations. To help you understand this issue better, the Kinetics Group has developed an infographic that summarizes the top errors in genetic counseling and some of the findings from these patient case studies. If you would like a copy of this infographic titled, Challenges and Errors in Genetic Testing Negatively Impact Therapeutic Decision-Making, 
please email me directly or send a request to our podcast email address at oncology at thekineticsgroup.com, and I'd be happy to send you a free copy. Special thanks to my good friends Megan Farmer and Daniel Bonadies for sharing their time and expertise with us today. Well, this wraps up another week of TKG's Healthcare Insights. Thank you for joining us. Please note that the views and opinions expressed by the guests on these podcasts are those of the guests and do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of the Kinetics Group and our staff, clients, or customers. We welcome your suggestions, ideas, and requests for podcast topics of interest. Please email me at oncology at thekineticsgroup.com and write Insights Podcast in the subject line. Thank you. Have a safe and healthy day. You have been listening to TKG's Healthcare Insights, a program produced by the TKG Oncology team of the Kinetics Group. TKG Oncology empowers life science companies to effectively engage with health system and payer customers by developing strategies and real-world solutions aimed at impacting the right patient at the right time with the right care. We also work directly with health systems and payers to address the critical issues of our time. We would love to hear from you. Reach out to us at tkgoncology.com. Thank you for joining us today.